Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to take this moment to say thank you for listening to the Real Rescue Podcast. It means a lot to me that you enjoy these stories as much as I do. Since the start of this podcast, we've had a lot of support from all over the world. It has been amazing. Now, we have companies joining our team that also want to say thank you for all that you are doing out there standing the watch. These companies are offering discounts on their products as a way to support the rescue community and those tuning into the Real Rescue Podcast. Just go to therealrescue.com, click on Sponsors, and see these incredible offers for yourself. This episode of the Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. Axness, because when lives are at stake and conditions are challenging, Clear communication is of the utmost importance. SR3 Rescue Concepts, because you don't know what you don't know. And Airwave, the Airwave Performance Mouthpiece, helping you to use breathing to your advantage. Breeze Eastern, they dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. The Axness PNG Wireless ICS System can bring cutting-edge wireless intercommunication system technology to any aircraft. The PNG system can be fully integrated into an existing ICS system or can be carried on and off as a mobile base station. They can go anywhere, at any time, on any aircraft. Plus, with the strongest and most robust waterproof handheld on the market, this system can take a hit and keep working. Their wireless intercom systems are designed to enhance situational awareness through improved communication capability. This system brings superior noise-canceling technology to eliminate rotor wash and engine noise from your ICS. The Axness PNG wireless system is currently deployed in more than 1,800 public safety, air ambulance, and search and rescue aircrafts worldwide. I have personally used the Axness system in four different countries and on five different airframes. It is awesome. If you want more information, contact them today at axness.com. That's A-X-N-E-S dot com. You just make sure you tell them Quinny sent me. SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help your helicopter training. They train daytime, nighttime, aerial firefighting, hoist, longline, fast rope, rappel, and more. They can assist your program with standardization and safety checks or just an FAA annual refresher. With a certified flight instructor pilots and experienced crew, they are ready to help your agency keep up to date with current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. Plus, right now, SR3 is offering 10% off anything in their web store with the promo code, all capital letters, REALRESCUE, R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. Plus, they are offering another 10% from their partners, Petzl, and their equipment, all you gotta do is send an email to info at sr3rescueconcepts.com. Mention this podcast and they'll take care of the rest. And Airwave. What if I told you that you could train harder for longer 
and recover faster just by wearing a mouthpiece. I know, I questioned it too. Then I gave it a try. The Airwave Performance Mouthpiece is a breakthrough in performance technology that is scientifically proven with over 15 years of peer-reviewed published research at the Citadel to open your airway by 25% for improved breathing, resulting in a 20% decrease in respiratory rate, an increase in muscular endurance, and 50% reduction in cortisol levels post-workout. Now, what does this mean to me? Well, now I'm able to train harder, recover faster, and be even more prepared for when that SAR alarm goes off. You don't need to take my word for it. Try it yourself and see how you can use your breathing to your advantage. Go to airwave.com or visit them on Instagram at airwave to learn more about it. Then, when you're ready to give it a try, because you heard about it here at The Real Rescue, you get 10% off with the promotion code Real Rescue, R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. I had the opportunity to meet our next guest at the Eurosa 2022 meeting in Portugal. He put on an amazing presentation while we were there. And in our side conversations, I asked him if he would be willing to come on and tell us here at the, on the podcast all about it. I, I'm totally pumped that he was willing to do that. In addition, he added a couple of rescue stories of his own. So please welcome our next guest, Dr. Ben Medley. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Real Rescue. Yes, another episode with a brother from Down Under. <laughs> you know how yeah. much I love saying that, just so you know. Come on, Ben, that's funny. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Ben, actually, I, let me go like properly here, Dr. Ben Medley. What's up, Doc? Thanks, man. Thanks for having me, Jason. Really appreciate it. It's great to be here. Heck Long time yeah. listener. Yeah. Hey, you know what? That's I appreciate that. You and I actually, yeah. it's kind of cool because we've talked quite a bit. And then we were at uh, the Eurosa meeting up in Portugal, which is a great time. You had a great speech up it there. Was. We got talking even more. I was like, oh, dude, you got to come on and tell some of this stuff. So after. Yeah. Like, the long walks back from the venue right? back to the uh, back to the hotel. <laughs> Mostly it was great. staggering. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, there's a bit of that, bit of that. Well, you know, there was some broken bones too, wasn't there? It might have been, you know. <laughs> Slipping <laughs> and falling though. on that. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we won't we won't totally call them out, but <laughs> I love it. Well, Ben, like I said, love man, it. thanks for thanks for being willing to come on and, and share some of the stories and, and some of the research and stuff that you've been doing. Um, but before I get into that, a little background. Like you, how did you get into search and rescue, being a paramedic, all the way to doctor at that? By the way, congratulations. That's freaking amazing. And uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. How'd it work? Yeah. So I've been a paramedic for 25 years. And in our service, uh, search and rescue almost entirely is done by the civilian uh, sector. So search and rescue from a military point of view is usually targeted to, to the military. So, uh, 
for helicopter search and rescue that is done mainly by ambulance services in Australia. So we have a bit of a different model uh, where our ambulance services are state run. So the, the state I live in, which is a population of about 7 million people on, on the Southern aspect of Australia, we have a statewide ambulance service, just the one ambulance service. And that ambulance service is responsible for all kinds of uh, response. And that includes helicopter response. So we have, uh, we have, five one three nines across the state uh, and we have uh, multi-role HEMS effectively, so HEMSAR. So we do roadside rescues, you know, roadside car accidents. That's our, our big bread and butter work. Uh, the intermediate work that we do is critical care transfers from uh, regional healthcare facilities. And then the rest nice. of the work is, is SAR. So we do land and water SAR. And so we're cross-trained across all of those capabilities, which is, uh, which is the medical the, the search and rescue as well as um, yeah some other bits and pieces there as well so we have um, I, I started out I guess when I was in the in the late 90s as a paramedic it was always a goal of mine to become a helicopter paramedic but within our service because we do so much of the medical you have to have an you know about a decade in before you're really eligible to to look it's a long time parts. yeah so not too many people would do it under that we have to you go from a a generalist paramedic to become then a, what we call a specialist paramedic or intensive care or critical care paramedic. You probably do each of those for four or five years each before you, you really kind of poised to go and work uh, by yourself. So you work as a single clinician on the aircraft and, and you're the, uh, the rescue crew officer as well. So you, you go out and do all your uh, your training to to consolidate all of those areas. But most of our people don't come from a SAR background before they go to the helicopter. And that's when you go to the helicopter, that's where you learn your SAR work. Um, wow. and, and in my service, it's a real bonus. It's a great career option for us uh, to have that ability to extend beyond the medical and do the SAR work. But it also means that when we do the SAR work, we can bring the medical component to it. So... I, I think it's a good system uh, and yeah, we, we, we think it meets the needs of most of our community. We do have some other SAR capable aircraft for the police in the uh, state as well. So for the uninjured people, we can, we can use them. Um, and they do a lot of those, uh, you know, the, in the unfortunate incidents of body recoveries, those types of things where there's no medical need, then they'll yeah. go and do that type of stuff or, or someone who's clearly just stuck somewhere. Yeah, for me, it's been a, a it was about yeah about a 10, 10 plus year journey to get there, and and I've I've been there for the last nearly fifteen years of uh, doing that job and and a whole bunch of other stuff. But um, yeah, that that's how our service is set up, and and I've kind of have structured my whole career to to get there, and and then I now work at one of our our country or regional bases outside of the major metropolitan area, which is a great place because it's near the wilderness, it's near the coastline. And we get a great mix of of medical and SAR work. Dang, that's great. Uh what what state are you in right now? Like or town or Victoria is yeah, Victoria, Victoria is the name of the uh of the state and the capital city is Melbourne, which is where I am currently. That's today. right. Yeah. You know I need yeah. to come out and hang out with all you guys down there. Just yes, saying. you do. Yes, you I... do. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's on my We'd list. love to have you. Anytime you're ready. Oh, my problem is I might show up and then never leave. And then the government will be after me and then it gets weird, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll hide you. We'll hide you. They'll never find you. Oh, perfect. Okay. I like that. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Job, I, I, it would... Like, Hey, thanks. Uh, it's listening to how you guys go through it. Like you get into your medicine first, 
uh, road ambulance yeah. is where it starts. Then you go That's back right. to school for critical care or what, That's the right. equivalent. Um, and then get into your helicopter stuff. And for me growing up, as far as in my career, it was the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interesting. So isn't for it? us, it's interesting. Yeah. Totally. Because it's it's interesting because uh, you know, it's it's a young person's game, I think, the SAR component, because you you're at your your physical prime um and you can you can tolerate the shift work really well. And ironically, with our model. You know, we don't see many people under 32, 33 before they start in the SAR role. So um, it's it's a pretty, there's a, a couple of exceptions, but, you know, we've we've got uh, the, the majority of our workforce is well into their 40s uh, wow. because they, of course, once you get to the job, you don't leave because it's so good. It just took you yeah. a decade to work out <laughs> that, yeah. to get there. So, um, so, yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, you look at, uh, I guess the other way around and someone like yourself, you go into US Coast Guard as a, you know, young thruster, as they would say. And, um, you know, you're, you're, you're prime when you're doing all that SAR work. And it was interesting to listen to the story, uh, story of that case officer story, uh, in your, one of your previous episodes about, you know, the young crew, you know, you got the, the old, the older, more experienced pilots and then you got the young brand new rescue swimmer you know, it was, and, and a couple of older old flight mechs as well. So it's an interesting mix, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, very much so. It, it's it for me. It was a blast. I mean, I loved it. Uh, but I, it's it's interesting to think about it because I will say, you know, like other guys have come on here and talk about it. It's like, hey, you know, work on your medical stuff as much as you do your SAR stuff. But as a young, like, you know, adrenaline pumping, yeah, young buck, damn, the like, priorities. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I yeah, just yeah. want to get in the water. I just want to you get on yeah. scene. You're like ah. <laughs> So to have an opposite, yeah. you know, I mean, whatever, however yeah. you get there, I don't care. And as long as you get there. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. And, and um, yeah, and I guess there's some of that stuff. It's a balance, isn't it? About mindset at, you know, you look back to your twenties and think about some of the decisions you might've made and uh, right? maybe revisit some of them if you had the chance <laughs> again. But um, so um, I don't know whether you necessarily come with a clearer head you know, later down your path to the SAR work per se. I don't know, but it is, there's no right, wrong answer. You know, it's just a different system. And um, and I think that we have, um, because, again, because of the proportion of our work for the SAR staff is lesser than the medical. Um, and, and we're trying to get best bang for your buck, if you like, out of the system right. by, by having that multi-role capability. Um, yeah, it's, there's always, there's always trade-offs, isn't there? You know about yeah. having one versus the other. So do you want a full-time dedicated SAR service within our state, given our population and the the area? We just don't have the workload to to justify that. Um, and so combining it with the medical response means that you get the the best value for what is a really expensive service, as you know. Nothing yeah. that starts with helicopter is cheap. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Heck, uh, what is it? Just a hoist pendant is like $20,000. And I don't oh, think I'm exaggerating with that either. <laughs> no, no. When It's funny when you speak to family and friends who who aren't in the business about bits and pieces of, of cost and they go, oh yeah, no, there he goes exaggerating again. You're like, well, you know, $100,000 uh, really. rotor blade is probably not far from the <laughs> truth. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Yeah, it's not. It's crazy to think about. Like I said, just the hoist pendant. Yeah, that's you it. know, I, I I really think yeah, it's like yeah, twenty it. grand. It's, so it's yeah, 
it's it's nuts. Yeah, yeah, it's expensive but, business. You know, you got a half 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 a million dollar engine sitting somewhere spare just in case. So yeah, it's an expensive yeah. game. So I guess for us, um, providing the the best bang for your buck to the community because it because it's a you know it's a federal it is a hundred percent funded by the taxpayer. So we've got yeah. to give the community the best service we can for for what they contribute. No, I think that's great. Now you're uh you're a guy. Oh, what do you call it? A winchman, rescueman, rescue swimmer. A little bit of everything. Yeah, rescue crew, rescue RCO, or you know, rescue crew officer. I think is what the okay. term is, is uh, is given. Um, but yeah, the the power, the the actual term of the profession is a mica. Uh, sorry, mobile intensive care ambulance. So mica flight paramedic is the term, but that encapsulates multi role, which is the medical and the the rescue crew officer role as well. So gotcha. we have a crew of three in our aircraft. So pilot. Uh, the air crew officer and then the paramedic who's in the back and our air crew officer is the winch operator and they uh or are, they are, they are multi-role in fact they're the busiest our air crew officers who who often come from um, other SAR agencies or the military um they that's where they get their kind of collective experience before they come to us we've got you know kind of minimum hour requirements before they they would come to us and they are the busiest people in the aircraft so they are front left seat on the way to a job and then if it's a winch or a hoist job sorry they they would crawl through the center console of the 139 and, and jump in the back and then start operating uh the hoist and then down down i go or down the paramedic goes and then if that's a me- medical job then when we bring the patient up and the door's closed and they're disconnected and secured uh they're on the tools the medical tools so they cross train as a, a medical assistant as well wow. so they'll be drawing up medications and getting ivs ready and turning ventilators on and all kinds of stuff so the uh, air crew officer job is a really busy job so our, our friend ben darlington you know that's uh oh, that's him you know that's, Shout the, out to that's ben. the job we love him it's in the name of course yeah. but oh, yeah. um it's uh <laughs> so so they're they're super busy. We've got a it's a great little team of three people. It's a it's a really interesting thing. So we still run single pilot uh on the one three nine. Yeah, that's cool. Um yeah, that that's that's a unique side of things with that. But that might be another conversation for a whole other time too. <laughs> um yeah, yeah, that's a big aircraft that you're flying single pilot. So you know absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's, lots of stuff. And so you know the when when they if we're doing confined air entry landings etc um, then it again the, the air crew officer comes into the back they'll be right door the paramedic be on the left door clearing uh, into confined areas and uh, and helping out the pilot as best we can so it's a lot lot going on for that that small team of three. I'm just thinking about like Ben or Sam or one of those guys because they're not little dudes they're 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 kind of they're tall <laughs> yeah, Sam's a little wide he's about my size like. Maybe a little bit bigger than me, and like crawling from the front left over the console in the back. All right, that's let's go. It. Let's get hoisted. <laughs> that's it. Be oh, snap. oh, that's awesome. Right on. All right. Now, yeah. out of curiosity, I'm going to go a step further and, and ask you um, what brought you to all the way to get your certification as being a doctor? And is the doctor the same doctor that I'm thinking about, like medical doctor, like ER doc? Nah. Okay. No, no. PhD, PhD. So pretend doctor. Um, oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you can, you can, um, you can make an argument one way or the other. That, um, 
So it's, you uh, have your doctoral, yeah, just, which is hard correct. to get, by the way, because I don't have mine. It, I'm it, just going to throw that out there for you, okay? <laughs> well, you know, it's never it's never too late. I didn't start mine until <laughs> I was 40, so it was... Um, Noted. Yeah, so so it's an academic qualification, not a medical one. I think I've got enough medical uh, stuff to to keep me ticking along. So that was more about that. A PhD really just qualifies you to be a researcher. That's that's what that's about, and kind of build yourself as a subject matter expert. But it is a, it is hard work. It's a lot yeah. of hard work, but um, really really rewarding. But effectively, what what happened was, you know, you go out for for you know by at that time of my career, I'd been flying for. A, for 10 years and you just end up asking questions so you go out and do some rescues you go out and do some medical work you go out and fly around and do some some SAR work or whatever it is and you go okay you know what can we do this better are we doing it to the best standard that we possibly can what are other people doing it's really important to not kind of live in your own silo of you know just because we think we're the best that's probably not the case there's probably people doing it as well if not better what can we learn from them um and if you, know, you want to know who the best like is if you really oh, yeah. want to know just who the you. best is yeah ask that agency at that moment in time that's it Lo- love it if you just want to know that's it. they'll just tell you Simple oh, equation. That's, it. <laughs> <laughs> that's it it's so uh, yeah yeah it's um it's the uh the mutual appreciation society, isn't it? You know, everyone's pretty happy with their own little group. So, but uh, I, yeah. So, you know, I went out and did lots of work, you know, I was really, I've had a, one of those careers where I've been lucky and I've got out to go and do a lot of great jobs over the years. And you always come back. I think the, the way you become an expert at something is to always ask the question of whether you could have done it better. And I think, you would you've spoken to heaps of people in your career and certainly in your podcast, which is great to hear, where people tell their stories. But they, the, the definition in my mind of an expert is somebody who reflects immediately about how they could, could have done that better. And I guess yep. what for, what led me to research around this area was thinking more about that, not just in the instant of each individual job, but more of a system. You know, how can we do the system better? How can we do it overall better rather than just you know job by job? So that I guess that's where I landed after after going out and doing it myself. So I'm really fortunate because most academics don't necessarily go and do the job that they research. I was so lucky right. that I had the career that I had, and then I had you know the time and the support for my own family to then go and and pursue this this research, which you know it's time quite time consuming, but I had great support from the profession, great support from you know my colleagues and managers to start looking at what it is we do, but it's all based off real rescues. How'd you like that? Yeah, yeah. I dropped the name. Yeah, hey, oh, that was good. That was good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. We're actually going to uh, talk about this a little bit more um, because I want to hear more about your studies and stuff. And this also correlates and ties into uh, the presentation that you brought to Eurosa. So we have an opportunity yeah. to really bring your presentation to everybody else in the world that wasn't at Eurosa. So bonus there. But Buddy, Absolutely. you know I gotta ask your very first rescue, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, I had to had to make sure I had a couple of stories ready, didn't I? Otherwise, I'm not meeting the <laughs> the requirement of the actual name of the podcast. Um, Whatever. I think that you know the what? First, I just wanted you to one... come on. Anyway. Come on, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. I'll give you three stories. The um, uh, I appreciate. Uh, having me here even if my stories aren't as spectacular as some of your others but the first one which will come back to the research is I got inserted 
out in the high country in Victoria, the state I live in, which is a bit, it's pretty rugged. Like we have, um, from an aviation point of view, we have three what we call designated remote areas in Australia, big areas where you're required to carry minimum fuel requirements, minimum SAR equipment requirements, minimum survival equipment, because the it's that, you know, the definition, if you like, of this type of countryside is if you crash there, we're just not going to find you. So um, wow. you kind of could just going to have to stick it out. So there's three big areas um, in Australia. One's kind of in the centre of Australia. Uh, one's on the west coast of Tasmania, which is the island to the south of Australia, which is this really, really remote and rugged wilderness. And then the area that my helicopter base services is the other area, which is called the Victorian High Country. And uh, yeah, it's it, often when you're flying over there, you're like, yeah, we, we're just they're just not going to find us if we go down here. So, of course, it's not going to happen because <laughs> we've got an awesome team and awesome aircraft. But cool. um, we, yeah, that's it. We got sent out to we we call uh, Saturday afternoon in my surface motorbike Saturday uh, because almost certainly the uh, the jobs that we're going to go out to are, are probably related to some kind of. Uh, petrol powered object, usually a trail bike, uh, you know, motocross type bike. So we'd gone out and something and that has super this, fun adrenaline. It goes really fast and doesn't yeah, always and surprisingly, stop. <laughs> that's it. That's it. And surprisingly has a male aged 18 to 45 on it. So that's, that's usually it our demographic. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. So sure enough, that's exactly who we're going out to someone who's broken. And because I was so junior, you know, we hadn't done a heap of SAR training exercises as part of our initial accreditation, more just hoist technique, learning how to how to um, work with the aircraft and be hoisted in and out and all of the bits and pieces about getting a, a stretcher in the door. And at the time, it was a 412. Um, great, fantastic aircraft, you know, very capable for, for what we were doing at the time. Uh, but I... I didn't really understand much about all of the flight rules about getting close to a, a scene. It was still kind of finding what what the hell all of that meant to to me. So if pilots did something, I was kind of just trying to understand why they couldn't get me closer or or why I was so close sometimes. Sometimes it's about being like, oh wow, we're right down in this valley or whatever it is. We've got, you know, 250 foot of cable. Why are we why we're we right down in this cave in this valley, you know, skimming the treetops. So it's a good example of just letting the experts do their job. But in this particular case, I got put down at the bottom of a really, really steep, rocky, uneven trail. And I was about probably 800 metres. So I don't know what that, that's that's half a mile from the patient. And it was almost vertical to, to get up to this person, which is why they had, uh, why they'd come unstuck. And, I had all my equipment and because you're a solo uh, solo rescue rescue crew officer in these circumstances, you put down by yourself and I've got to carry, you know, the medical kit, I've got to carry the stretcher, the collapsed um, stretcher, which I think at the time was the, the Ferno kind of uh, collapsible orange plastic stretcher. Um, yeah. And then, and then walk up the hill with all this, you know, 40 kilos of gear to to get to this patient and so holy um, shit and you get there and he's pretty pretty sick you know a couple of broken legs and 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 so you've then got to uh get up there and i'm spent from from the from the walk of you know 
800 meters straight up a straight up a almost you know not it's not vertical of course but a very very steep unsteady incline but then you've got to deliver medical care for someone who's actually quite injured um and then get the get them packaged up and then we've got by virtue of the fact that i couldn't be winched directly to him in the first place that answers the question about whether you can winch them out or not so that wasn't the end of then got to you know recruit a couple of his motorcycle riding buddies to get get him relocated to another location so the thing i remember about that first rescue was we we're in the middle of nowhere in very remote countryside um immense physical uh, effort which was fine but then having to make clinical decisions at the end of the job and then a 200 foot winch with, with stretcher accompanied stretcher winch and then you know in, in managing the tagline um you know through through tall timber and uh, and trees and and getting back up to the aircraft so i just remember the whole package of that job even though in isolation you know going for a walk with some heavy equipment that's something i can do no worries uh managing someone to give them some some fentanyl or morphine and put an iv in or whatever for, for their broken legs and splint their limbs and maybe give them some fluid and monitor their blood pressure etc i can do that in isolation you know relocating the patient from where they were in the stretcher with with some friends up to a, a place to be extricated from all of those things in isolation are fine put them all together that's a really hard job and it is yeah. quite, I think, a bit of an awakening of as to how complex some of these cases can be. And then, you know, the first time you spend, uh, you know, 200 foot winch with, you know, yourself, uh, you know, with my gear at the time, I would have been 85, 90 kilos plus, you know, the the patient and and my gear, you know, you're pushing the max limits of the hoist. So that, of course, the, the winch speed is at its slowest. So you spend a lot of time in fresh air with a uh, at a at a height above the uh, the the forest floor, um, and you're like you know looking around, going you know yeah this is a cool job, but I wouldn't mind being inside the aircraft right about now. So anytime <laughs> you're ready to uh, to get me up to the door, that'd be really great, and uh, and making sure that the tagline's punched off and and um, and getting everything right. So I, I wouldn't have said it went perfectly, but that was the first first big rescue that I did, and I just remember thinking at the end of it, there's a lot of moving parts to those jobs to make sure you do them well, do them safely, make sure yeah. you're still looking after the patient, make sure you're looking after yourself as well. Um, but it then goes back to the the big systems thing is like, was I prepared to do that job? And in that instance, yeah, I think I, think I, I probably was at the time, but I, I, I was physically prepared to do the job, but the logistics and the complexity of the job was a real kind of learning thing from that job. Dang. Anything you would have done different now that you, after you got back or if you, probably had, would have if you had the same case now? Yeah. I probably would have walked a bit slower because, you know, the adrenaline's <laughs> pumping, you've been put down and you've got to ask the question, you know, how sick's the patient? Don't really have a whole lot of information a lot of the time. Up in those parts of, the, of Australia, there's not a whole lot of great communications, no, no mobile phone reception, that type of stuff. So so a lot of the time you you kind of max yourself out to get to the patient to make sure that you can deliver the care, and I you know you, you know now that he probably was he, he was going to be fine for another couple of minutes. So probably just save him a few as we would say save your bickies in Australia. Save your save biscuits, your bickies. Spend all of the uh... yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> don't burn all your matches too quickly. So yeah yeah. So I think I probably should have just chilled out a little bit and taken my time, but um. Yeah. We um 
we got there in the end. Um, and I think there was some, uh, it was the first time we'd flown together as a crew, that particular crew. Uh, it was a new contractor onto the, onto our, um, our service as well. And it would have been the first kind of big uh, job or, you know, big SAR job for that, for that crew. I was a junior paramedic, but a fairly junior host operator, a very, very experienced pilot, but one that was new to the, to the operation. So, you know, a couple of good learning things, but we really do make sure we do formal debrief of all those cases to make sure we sit down and take it, take away the lessons. But yeah, there was a couple of lessons there and things are things differently again. Um, yeah. For the most part, we got the job done. Uh, so just, just maybe slow down. It's good advice from uh, more senior experienced people that young people generally don't take. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I'm on board. Like, Hey, Hey, s- slow down, man. And I was the I was the same guy that was going balls to the wall just of a course. couple of years ago. You know, That's like it. even now That's I'm it. like, yeah, let's go, go, go. And I'm like, oh, wait, yeah. wait, a wait a minute, wait a minute, take take a minute, take a minute. That's it, dude. Nice, That's good it. save. I like that. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, yeah. All right, you um, said so, three, yeah, so I'm I'm ready. For oh yeah, and I guess <laughs> the next one, which is a bit of a, I, the next one's more of a comedy than than a real epic job, but uh, we we had a big construction project going down building a desalination plant in the south of our state a number of years ago and uh there was there might have been some loose hands of some of the employees with regards to some of the gear from that construction site and uh, we got this call for some guy down near this um this desalination plant which of course is on the coast because that's obviously where they get the water from um and there's some pretty some pretty decent cliff faces not far from from where they were and uh, and sure enough uh, one of the guys who's a rigger at this at this construction site so he's got all the ropes and the harnesses he's the safety guy he decides that when he's uh, knocked off from work one day he's going to go just randomly go abseiling down one of these cliffs um <laughs> but he's and he's still in his like his employer's uniform and he's just you know gone gone down and gone oh yeah no just finish work go for an abseil see what happens uh and he's thrown the ropes that you know were, were probably the company's ropes over uh you know tied them to a log somewhere thrown them over uh put his put his work harness on but he's not checked how far those ropes uh go down the cliff and he's got you know 30 meters so i don't know how many feet that is you'll have to do the conversion but 90, 30 meters a long way give it a uh, down yeah 90 foot that sounds about right yep so he's got that that far down the cliff phase <laughs> And realized he's still got another 40 meters to the bottom. He's at oh, the end of geez. the rope and he hasn't he has no ascending device. So uh so yeah, we we got tasked. He still had his mobile phone with him, had reception, and he's just like, Well, I don't he called his wife and said, I don't know what to do. And she said, Well, I can't I can't help you, mate. You know, I'm not sure <laughs> what you expect me to do. So so we went down there and and some of these things you just don't train for. We we don't do a lot of the other states in Australia. The the HEMSAR paramedics training advanced roping techniques, and um, you know, in this situation, we have to do some anchoring and, and a whole range of other stuff. We do we really solve a lot of these problems through hoisting. So we went down there, and uh, oh, we found him, you know, really quickly because he's wearing his high visibility work uniform. He wasn't hard to find, and uh, there he is. You know, can't go up, can't go down, and it was almost like a a weird co- comedy TV show where I kind of get hoisted down to him and it was a decent hoist, you know, it was all, the aircraft was a long way up. So we had the ability to speak to each other pretty easily. And it, it was like a, 
almost like something out of the Muppets. So I get lowered down to this guy just to have a conversation and going, what the hell are you doing, mate? And uh, he goes, yeah, you know, it's just, uh, sorry about that. And uh, just didn't really check the ropes, sorry. And so just, I put the strop around him and um, said, I'm going to have to cut the ropes, mate, because we're, we're out of here. Pulled out the, uh, the Spyderco knife and sliced the ropes and dropped him up at the top of the car park and his wife picked him up and went home. So... It was, wasn't much of a spectacular. It was a beautiful cliffside, but it was a bit of a weird job. You don't come to work expecting expecting that those those kind of jobs. Some days uh, everything's a bit interesting, eh? Oh, that's hilarious! Hey, man, what are you doing? Yeah. Ah, not really sure. Yeah. Sorry, I had to call you out here. I'm stuck. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Well, I guess that's what we do for a job. So here we are. Oh, but um, yeah, so that was that was pretty cool. And I guess the last story was was the one you know I've got. A couple of other decent water stories, but I'll, I'll go with a, a water inland water story. We got sent out to um, to a river in the same remote area that I spoke about earlier. To and this was the first time I'd started working at this this regional base. It was one of my first shifts there, and you know, pick up a a SAR job at at seven o two in the morning, two minutes after after logging on for the day, and uh, head out to the river. And it was the first time I, I I really hadn't really rationalized what the aircraft was doing. This particular pilot was just a maestro. The the aircraft was an extension of his fingers. He was just so impressive. Pleasure to fly with. And the crewman, uh, as in the the hoist operator, had had probably more experience than the pilot. So this super, super experienced crew that have been doing this remote star stuff for, for 30 years. And uh I, I was that. just this kind of new, this newbie and i'm like i have no idea what's going on and we've been told that there's seven people we need to hoist out of this uh this river oh sick. and uh i'm like oh, okay right no worries and it's an hour flight so we, we go up and you know, we we come down and, and i've just kind of assuming this this river obviously is at the bottom of a valley between two very large um uh big kind of regional mountains we, we've got mountains in australia but they're 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 not really by international standards, but they're big enough. They're you know two and a half, two two thousand meters or so. So big big mountains in our in our country. So so yeah, they're. But for me at the time, the realization of they just got so far down into the valley, I kind of just assumed that they would run the length of the cable to insert me. But they got right down onto the river and right down into the obviously away from the survivors to make sure we we weren't going to injure them. But. It was just it was just this incredible learning experience to watch these two super super experienced people, you know, collectively sixty years of doing this stuff in really remote terrain, um, and it just it was just listen and learn. And I, you know, you ask all the questions later, you're like, oh, I didn't really realize. But anyway, we get down there. There's two kayakers who, who've injured themselves pretty nicely going down a waterfall and they've got broken broken uh, bones all over the joint. So we've got to got to get them up to the aircraft. But a uh, a search a ground party had gone in and overnighted uh, with them, um, and so they were the other five. They're all fed. They've started a campfire. They've all eaten. You know, a couple of paramedics, a couple of police officers, and a and a and a search and rescue specialist. And they've gone in there. They're all cool. You know, they're they're in they're in full Gore-Tex and Polytech. You know, they're they're good as gold. These other guys are still in their wetsuit from from kayaking. And uh, and they, they so the two were quite injured. We go, no worries, we'll get those guys out. And then the other five just wanted a, a ride home. And I'm like, oh, you know, that was again for me as a junior. I'm like, 
I don't really know. Is this what we do? You know, do we do we hoist another five people up to the aircraft to give them a ride home because they don't want to walk out? Um, and you know, the weather was good and all the rest of it. So that was a good learning experience for me. On and I said, look, I think you're given you you're actually able bodied. You enjoy your walk. I'll catch you later. So uh, yeah, so we we uh, sent them on their way, much to their disappointment, and it was only always <laughs> two in the end. <laughs> but it's oh, yeah, man. it was just that. That phase of my career where I learned so much from people who've been doing it before, and it was all this stuff that it was a revelation to me that was new, and just just remember lapping up all this information from from just learning how to do jobs well, doing how to do them safely and to the best of your ability, and you know, yeah, sometimes you're just in awe of watching people who are experts at their job. Oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Oh, get two guys that are all jacked up. Hey, can we take a ride? Yeah, no, no, yeah, you can't. No, no. sorry, no, en- no, no. Enjoy your walk. You can't. You can't just kind of. You can't draw a, a little uh, pros and cons um, or, or risk analysis in the in the dirt for them and go look. You know, here's the here's the risk of hoisting in another five people into that four twelve, and uh, here's here's the risk of you walking out of here. So you send them on their way. Oh, that's great. <laughs> man, I love it. I love the stories, man. Thank you. Thank you for sharing those. No worries. No worries. Um, so one of the things I, I do need to recognize you for and for everybody else out there is recently, and when I say recently, as of January of this year, you earned yourself, along with a couple other people, the Ambulance Service Medal. Recognizes Distinguished Service uh, as a member of an Australian ambulance service. Well done, sir. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. That was a great um, honor. Very, very, uh, very humbled by the award. Oh, it's it's amazing. And um, I, I don't actually have how many people were on the list to get it. Uh, and is it per state or do what do you even know? Yeah, so they, they, they give about five or six per state per year. Yeah. That's so... What is there? There's, there's not many states in Australia. It's six off the top of my head. Uh, is that right? Six, seven? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have couple, we have seven overall, can, including a couple of territories. But yeah, so there's about fifteen thousand paramedics in Australia. So um, it was it was nice to get the award. Yeah. Uh, so well done, sir. I mean, that's that's fantastic. And as a matter of mm-hmm. fact, it says, Thanks, "Yeah, you're welcome. You're very welcome." Um, in an article. Uh, the Sentinel Times covering the South Gippsland and Bass Coast. The mm-hmm. newspaper article here has you, beautiful picture of you. And uh, it comes down and just says, uh, it is recognition of this that he was named among the illustrious group to receive the national recognition on Australia Day, which convenient enough, as you just told me a little while ago, is your version of the Independence Day for America. So freaking yeah, awesome, something, man. Something similar. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah, hey, you're welcome. Heck yeah. So uh, mm. hi, this all came from everything that you've been doing. 20, you said 26 years of being a paramedic, all your research, right? All of that combined is is what earned you this award, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And I think I've been lucky to do a lot of clinical research as well around some of the things we do for our medical jobs um, but yeah the last last number of years has been really been centered around how we can look after our flight paramedics doing 
the uh, doing the Hempsar role better and and give them a long career, get them prepared for their jobs, identify the things that uh, make you good at your job, uh, specifically around the physical stuff as well, so that so that we can really, especially because we've the type of workforce that we've got, where they like I said earlier. Uh, they aren't a young workforce by comparison. And so, you know, making sure we keep people well and prepared throughout their career is really important. That became really important to me. So, yeah, I've been lucky to do a lot of different things in the ambulance service over the years and in research. So this is, this is kind of, uh, again, humbled by the recognition. Love it. And uh, again, it's well-deserved. This is the same research that you had done uh, and you gave the presentation at Eurosa. So it is literally um, the studies of physio physiological uh, to keep us demands. physically yep. fit. Yep, yeah, demands. Right. There you go. Better that's word. Right. Better word. Thanks. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> but mm -hmm. the physical demands that we go through as rescuemen on the hook, down on the ground, flying and everything, you know, like we can bring it back to the very first rescue that you talked about. Being hoisted in, having to hike 800 meters up, then having to relocate a patient. Let's call them 100 kilos for round numbers. You and two mm. other dudes, and now you got to hoist them out, and you have to treat them in the back of the helicopter all the way back to am or an ambulance or a hospital. Yep. So, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so that's that's exactly you know that it's funny because I, I hadn't really thought about that particular job that I mentioned earlier in a while, and and. I guess it's probably just sat at the back of my mind a lot of the time been a really hard job so when I, when we first when i when i did that actual job i had I, I spoke to a couple of the managers at um at the base that i worked at and, and the service that i worked at and going hey do you reckon that the physical standards that we ask people to meet do you reckon they match the job that we actually ask people to do so uh my my undergraduate university degree, my bachelor's degree is in exercise science. So I'd always had, and I took my career, took a, a uh, you know, right-hand turn into, into paramedicine, um, which, which is, you know, another, another story for another day, but I always still maintained an issue, an interest, interest in sports science and my own, you know, physical wellbeing and, and my own, you know, sporting pursuits and stuff, uh, always interested in human performance across all factors but I, I wanted to have a bit of a look at, you know, the, the standards that we were set and whether or not they matched the job and whether we were, you know, doing the right thing by our staff. And we did a little tweak with some work, I guess, just with my undergraduate knowledge, did a bit of tweaking to the, the process, which was really kind of served us quite well. But then as time went on, I, I really wanted to dig into it a little bit deeper, which is how I ended up doing the research and again the organization really supported me to to do that and i found out once i enrolled in my my doctorate that there's actually a full science dedicated and that is called the science of physical employment standards so that then links to a process that you need to follow to actually say okay if we're going to examine someone or we're going to set a standard but more importantly if we're going to make sure we can prepare our staff well so that they can actually go do their job and minimize injury and have a long career and meet the service we say we're going to provide. There's actually a, a process to follow to do that that's scientifically validated. So oh, that's that cool. physical I didn't know. Yeah. That. So that physical Yeah, yeah, neither did I until that until I heard it from <laughs> uh, one of the experts. And that basically meant I had a 
a template to follow for my research. And so that's what I really did. And it had never been done in helicopter rescue paramedics before. So that's where my project took off and I was able to say, okay, we're going to follow this process for, for our group of paramedics. And um, we've only got uh, 40 or so uh, staff in our service. And so I was able to you know, lean on a few well-established relationships to ask people to participate in my studies. And we went about basically going going out and, and answering all the questions that had to be answered to build a scientific process uh, behind the requirements to do to do our job. And it, and it reveals a lot of information about how strenuous it actually is and specifically quantifying or actually putting numbers to how hard the job can be. In, in like that case I spoke about earlier, you know, what's your heart rate doing? What's your breathing rate doing? How much oxygen are you using? How many calories are you burning? Uh, what kind of recovery time do you need? What kind of preparation do you need both in the short and long term to be able to do that job safely. And so I was really fortunate to get that work done and published in, in and for, for academics, it's important to get it published in like a high reputation journal. That's that's what, what you're aiming for. So we've got our work put out there and I've been really lucky that a lot of that work's been picked up by a lot of other services as well. I get a lot of calls about the research to, to help other services use that as a guide as well. Man, that's good stuff. Question. What was the standard that you guys started out with? So I, and I, yeah. I'm assuming like push ups, sit ups, pull ups, maybe a run, maybe a yep. swim, something like that. So exactly. what what was it when you first started? So when we first started, we had um, so the ambulance says for all paramedics does a kind of generic medical slash physical entry all paramedics course. ground all paramedics. as well. Yep, 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 yep. Brilliant. So five thousand. I love it. There you go. Just so you know. So they've got it. There you go. It's 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 noted for history. Um, so we we were really lucky to to have that standard, I guess, as a reference point. And it was, I think, it, I could be wrong, but the general paramedics would have to get a score of fourteen out of twenty four to pass that test. I think, and that involved a submaximal test, which which is a aerobic fitness test. They call that a VO two max test, or and so it's a a test where, they, where you're not actually going to your maximum effort, but you do a, a, a sub-maximal effort and then you predict your maximum performance. Um, do one of those, just an exercise bike test. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different versions of that. You know, the beat test or the shuttle run test is, a, is another version of a test like that. Um, Sit-ups and push-ups, like you say, as well. A couple of other strength-based assessments is what's done for the general paramedics. And then for the flight paramedic selection process, they then ask you to do the same test, but to, you've got to get like 21 out of 24. So to a higher standard, um, you've okay. got to pass that test. And then there was, you know, an aviation medical that would be the same as what a, a pilot or, or a non-flying aircrew officer would, would have as well. Um, so the pilots where... had to do this. No, no, the pilots oh, do their own aviation man. medical. I, just was, to... no. I was so excited about that, like, <laughs> Let's go, you guys up front. We got it. We got a PT day. Let's uh, go. <laughs> yeah, love it. No, no, the pilots have got to meet like a general medical physical. So you got to do yep. uh, where you, where you know you make sure you're not going to have a heart attack when you're flying that type of stuff. So you got to do the same one of those. And then um, there was a swim test, which was it's a pretty standardized test across um, Australia actually, and that involves. Uh, an underwater swim in, in overalls and boots. 
you kick off the boots, then you swim for 200 meters in your overalls, you know, flight suit, um, and then you tread water for 10 minutes. Pretty, pretty standard test done in a lot of services. Okay. And then there was, uh, and that was it really, I think for the, when I went through, there might've been one other thing, but when we revisited it, we amped that up a bit. So we doubled the length of the swim and then we introduced a dedicated pack hike as well, time to pack hike with the, uh, the equivalent of the, of the operational gear, just to put people under a little bit of pressure um, and nice. a little bit of, um, you know, almost replicating that job I spoke about earlier where you ask somebody to, to, push towards a patient and and feel like they're they're under strain. So we did that. Um and then that that was the standard at the moment. But it still it hadn't really it, you could still call it arbitrary because it's not really based on any any scientific process. So we we thought when we got to the big research project, we need to follow the process and answer the questions. And what did you come up with? That's a good question. I was waiting for it. Um, so what we in in, to, in quick in, in a quick summary, we went and put people into the sports lab, and we got them on a treadmill, and we did a proper VO two max test. So we found out what their maximum capacity was when they were running. Then we basically invented a uh, a test in the pool where we sampled blood, we sampled their expired gases, we sampled their heart rate. We measured their gas on a gas analyzer, which tells us how much oxygen they use, how much CO2 they use, how much CO2 they breathed out. It's pretty decently scientific stuff. A bit nervous about having all that equipment on a poolside, but managed to not <laughs> blow up, blow it up. But we did all those pretty in-depth tests. And then what we wanted to do is see, did the did the running maximal test match the swimming maximal test results? And and we did find that they were actually in this group of paramedics the same. Or, oh or wow nice that's great so that that was huge so that was a huge benefit because what it allowed us to do is say testing someone's max capacity in the pool scientifically is really hard because you've got blood blood tests and heart rate tests and expired oxygen tests it's really really logistically hard to do there are certain machines you can buy that can help you do it but they're super expensive and they're prone to you know water damage and all kinds of stuff funnily enough um but the, the the test that you do on the treadmill is a bog standard test, been around for fifty years, and it's really really accurate. So if the running test is as accurate as the swimming test, which we found it was, then just do the running test because that'll yeah. tell you what the person's maximum capacity is. Doesn't cost much. Doesn't you know no danger of dropping expensive machinery in the water. Um, and and so that was the first thing that we did. We found that maximum swimming, oxygen use, and heart rates and stuff the same on the treadmill or close enough that you could say that that person met a standard and then what we did is we designed some scenarios to see um what what percentage of your maximum effort do you work at when you're doing SAR cases so we went through four years of SAR cases across our entire service hundreds and hundreds of cases and we looked at what type of work were pe people doing you know what's the actual job people are doing we kind of generalise the results to say that people are generally walking up steep hills with heavy packs and then moving patients. And then in the water type rescues, they're getting into the water, they're swimming to a life raft or they're swimming to a survivor and they're generally rescuing, let's say on average, one or two people. So we built some scenarios that were exactly that. We got someone uh, to walk up a hill with the pack and then provide patient care 
and we measured their oxygen, measured their heart rate, and measured their blood. And then we did the same thing uh, in an open water swim, 50 meter open water swim in the earth suit, wearing a harness attached to a winch cable. And we got to drag a dummy out of a life raft and then back kick to a, you know, a theoretical safe uh, winch extraction point away from the life raft. And we measured their oxygen, we measured their heart rate, measured their blood. And then we basically compared those efforts in the scenarios to what we saw in the lab for their max efforts to work out how hard they were working. And the result was basically people have been are working for really extended periods of time at about 85, even up to 90% of their max effort. So that's wow. that's hard. Yeah. So you've got to be able to train for that. You've got to train for it. So we answered the question, you know, how hard are people working? Hard. We've got a, you know, middle-aged workforce. So we need to provide them with the tools to be successful at doing their job. We need to make sure that they meet a standard. But we can also then say when we examine people to that standard, we can justify it. So if I say go and do 20 push-ups, and they go, and and a, and a you know, paramedic might say to them, why? You go, well, actually, don't know. Seems like a good idea. Quinny told me to <laughs> tell you to do 20 push-ups, so you're doing and, and 100 flutter kicks. So, yes. uh, so, you know, that's what you're doing. But the, it's a fair question to say why. You know, how yeah. does that relate to my job? But with this science, what we can say is, well, if I ask you to walk, we ask you as an organisation, I ask you to walk up a hill with 40 kilos of gear and uh, and it's 250 metres and it's unsteady terrain and I need you to do it in kind of around about five to seven minutes. I can justify that because we've got a whole bunch of science that tells us they're the types of jobs we expect you to do. And also we need you to work. We need you to demonstrate you can work at 85 to 90% of your capacity for five to seven minutes. Because if we pay couple hundred thousand dollars to train you over over all this time and deploy you in a, in a 22 million dollar aircraft to a job i need to know yeah. that you're actually able to do the job we say we can do and we owe that to the community as well we owe it to the person stuck where you know the guy who's stolen his ropes from work we owe we owe it to him to be able to to get him off the cliff we are, i need the motorbike rider we owe, owe it to them to be able to do it and we have to be able to say that our staff can do that job that's that's pretty awesome now uh, do you guys get into any like uh, a weight, body weight to ratio uh, lifting or like a deadlift or anything like that in your test? Um, at the moment, the there is some um, manual handy, handling based testing about being able to pick things up and being able to do things like a neck hold um, and move heavy objects around. So while it's not a deadlift per se, there's some kind of what we would call surrogate or proxy test that kind of assess that capacity. But there's there's still quite a bit of work to be done. What we really focused on in this test was more around the cardiovascular endurance aspect. And some of that strength stuff is, is work that we're really keen to do in the future because you know, the evidence around strength-based training just continues to, you already know this, I don't need to tell oh, yeah. you, and probably yeah. most of your audience, but the science behind it just grows and grows and grows of how good it is for you to to lift heavy stuff and throw it back down again. Pick the weight up, put the weight down. <laughs> That's it? It's not, not much it, more complicated is, than that, is it? No, it's not. Um, it, but all that, that base training that you're talking about is is so beneficial for the long-term game and yeah. i mean i'm all yeah, about it. i try to i try to train daily um 
you know, it doesn't always happen. Life gets in the way from time to time. So, That's it. It but does. the way I look at it, and my, I say this to my wife all the time, you know what? It doesn't happen today. Like she has report cards that she had to write out. My girl's a teacher. So it's report card season out here. But That's for it. her, it was like, you know what? I can't get to the gym today. So there's a workout tomorrow. She's going tomorrow, That's you know? So that's it. Um, and yeah, it's funny. One of the other bits of research that we did is we took junior paramedics and then we took these same group of paramedics. This is kind of a standalone project that we did on the side and just looked at their general lifestyle stuff. So for the general paramedics, we had them where we had 56 of them wear a Fitbit per year and we tracked all of their exercise data in, in real time. Okay. We did the same thing with a group of the flight paramedics who've been working on the helicopter for, you know, 10 years or whatever. Because one of the questions you got to ask, you go, if you're, well, I'll tell you the answer to the research. And because I don't have the answer to the other part. The answer to the research was that the flight paramedics did nearly double the amount of daily steps, double the, more than four times the amount of intense, high intensity exercise than the general population paramedics. So that was really interesting to see that. So, one of the things that's really interesting is you go, okay, do we need to tell HEMSAR paramedics and US Coast Guard rescue swimmers? And do we need to tell these people that they need to do physical activity? Well, sometimes the answer is actually no, because they self-select. Yeah. And they're probably that person by nature before they come through the front door. And the process <laughs> so they true. go through to the process they go through, especially, you know, with with Coast Guard rescue swimmers as as probably one of the more public examples is that unless you're that person you're just not going to get through the process anyway so uh, and that's seen in a whole bunch of other you know high performance teams whether it be sporting military paramilitary civilians uh whatever people tend to self-select and and but when we looked at the physical activity data for 12 months of, of monitoring in these helicopter paramedics I had to recheck it because, you know, the, the the volume of time that they spent doing high-intensity activity was, you know, four times the national average. And But it's because they self-select. Wow. They're just those types of people. Um, and and so sometimes you might go, well, throw the whole project out because they're going to look after themselves anyway because that's just the type of person they are that it, to mean that they're fronted up for the job in the first place. So it's not always the case, of course, but uh, certainly in a large group of our our people we saw that that was just part of their lifestyle anyway yeah interesting wow four mm. times like four times yeah the general pop yeah 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 it was a lot more so heaps heaps more minutes a day of, of, of that high intensity physical activity so and again like yeah you go oh that can't be right but you know go back check the data again it's right and uh we tracked them for 12 months you know it's not um it's not there's a lot of data points in in uh in you know minutely yeah. steps and heart rate for 12 months so yeah we we were really lucky to, to be able to see that and unfold in, in real time we looked it right down into their diet they did self-reported dietary questionnaires and everything again and you know, things you expect in there are there lots of caffeine um yeah. lots of um lots of carbohydrates to support their energy requirements and but generally you know they're looking pretty good we looked at all of their Again, they're a group of people who, who's I think the group that we studied were well into their forties at the average, and uh, yeah, the cardiovascular markers of health, so their cholesterol, their blood pressure, all those things that we tested as well, all normal. So, 
you know, there's something in this whole exercise thing, Quinny. You're onto something. You know what? I, I love it. For you. Right. It is pretty good for you. That's uh, <clears throat> that's not just a rumor. <laughs> no. Wait, so question about this one. Now, I was blessed with the U.S. Coast Guard, and I say that because they, the Coast Guard designed into the Rescue Storm program two hours to work out every day. I mean, it's just yep. by design, they put that in. They knew what they were asking us to do. And they said, you know what? We're going to give you the time to go to the gym or at least get, oh, we're going to call it, get a workout, go for a run, yeah. uh, go for a swim, go hit the weights, whatever, whatever yeah. fits your boat. And in all of my time in the guard, most of the time they didn't care what we did as long as we did something. And I say that because there were times we would just throw a pack on, we go hike the mountain. You know, and then, then there are other times yep. it was like, all right, this is a dedicated pool day. We're going to the pool and you'll be in the pool and we will get 2000 meters. And, and it was like, oh, yep. OK, that's that's a planned schedule. Um, do you guys get that down there? Do you get dedicated time no. to work out? No. And the re- and the reason is, and ironically, though, people, there is a gym on each of the bases people make it work. You know, they might come in an hour early for a shift and and, and yep. do their workout, or they might take time uh, during the shift when it's a bit of a lull in the work or they it's a predicted quiet time um, and, and actually take that opportunity. The primary difficulty is, is the medical workload that we have. So because there needs to be that ability to respond to a medical emergency within five to seven minutes, getting you off the ground in five to seven minutes. Oh wow, that's um, quick. Holy yeah. smoke. Yes. So so the the performance indicator that's required during the day is uh, in the air in 10 minutes is the is the cutoff. But you know that we've probably achieved that um and well under that most times. Um and overnight 20 minutes. So we we provide a very quick response so that that kind of means you're going to be in that state of readiness most of the time so um SAR jobs it can be a little bit different of course because if it's a complex SAR job and it's a long way offshore uh, well then of course there'll be a lot more planning go into a response especially if the person's you know stuck but not injured and then right. the time criticality is taken down a little bit but for the medical staff that you've got to be on the on the in the air quick um, so, so that's that's not an excuse, if you like, but it's it's a, one of the factors that means that in work workout time is hard hard to commit yeah. to. So, you know, getting changed, getting out of the aircraft, and, and getting going again, or even getting physically from the gym out to the flight line to get going. So, um, it would be a, a great idea. But again, we 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 studied it, and I think there's opportunity to support people much better from a um, you know, facility and time point of view. Everyone wants an awesome gym at their workplace, don't they? Of course and, they do. Uh, <laughs> that's it. And so we, we'd love, you know, a full, you know, the full kit and, and have everything. The facilities are very good. Certainly in the base I work at, we've got an exceptional facility. Um, but the the uh, overarching culture of, of being fit and ready is definitely there. We do not have the dedicated time. And it'd be something, it'd be a bit of a hard, hard thing to achieve given the response model. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I, I love the yeah. fact that you guys are coming in early though, and or they'd stay late at the end of a shift because, I mean, that's what I try to do. You know, if if I've got to do a shift like right now, we've been kind of given some time 
to work out in the morning. Um, so as yeah. a matter of fact, me and all the pilots, the crew members, even the mechanics are showing up. We meet at five 30 in the morning. We hit an hour, you know, we're going to call it PT session. Uh, and then yep. we, we beat feet and do our thing for the day. It's, it's a great yeah. team can't building believe, and all can't that. Believe you, uh, yeah. Can't believe that's you that's leading that. that that's really oh, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> But the other, yeah, the other side of, yeah, oh god, yeah, the, Portugal doesn't really count. There's only like four people that showed up. Darlington was one of them, though. I'm throwing him a bone. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, love it. One of the other cool parts about this is like, and these these studies are out there as well. Is the productivity yeah. that you get from people that exercise and take care of themselves actually goes higher than those that are just kind of lazy and and don't do it? So, yeah. And look, one of the things that's also interesting, yeah, you know, it, it sounds like you, you know, you're a bit biased in the way you talk about it. Because you know, you and I, we love exercise, love getting out there doing that. But again, yeah. that's also linked to why we're here in this in this job and in this profession. So uh, you know, that it, it kind of closes itself out there. But one of the things that's really important, especially for paramedics, because we've got all of our staff are experienced paramedics. There's always that risk of PTSD, and we continue to to have our staff going out to see really heavy jobs. You know, the, the helicopter generally only gets sent, not always, but generally gets sent to the vast majority of the really big jobs that are quite confronting all the rest of it. And the evidence just continues to grow and grow and grow to say that exercise is as good as a pill for for those things. Now, it's not the complete solution. Right. But even last week, there's a couple of good good papers that came out that say that uh, a, a, a regular exercise program that's pretty broad, you know, whether that be weights, whether it be cardiovascular or a bit of a mix of everything, is as effective as some of the antidepressants that are out there for, for treating things like uh, depression. And that's that's huge because you talk about mindset and um, and how how the benefits are just so numerous. The, the list goes on, you know, for every, the VO2 max, which is that marker, that scientific marker of cardiovascular fitness, which is all it really means. Every time you increase one point of that, you increase your your lifespan by, you know, up to a limit, obviously you're going to die at some point, um, but you increase your lifespan by a multitude, far more than uh, a year or so. So there's this big, big studies out of Europe where they followed people up for 40 years and, and looked at their, the cardiovascular fitness and there's very little things that we do for to benefit ourselves you know herbal remedies or you know some essential oils or whatever it might be none of that stuff's having this these kind of translational effects that exercise has for people and it makes sense you know humans were born to move right absolutely and if yeah. we don't do it you know it's um, unfortunately has, has some consequences. So we, we should move. And, you know, for, for employees in this, you need to be at that next level, really. And we've demonstrated that. Uh, man, that's that's good stuff. I, do you do your, uh, I'm going to call it a PT test. Do you do that annually? Is it six months, quarterly or what? No. So no, they don't re-examine. There's, a, there's some industrial kind of backgrounds, really common okay. in a lot of Australian and English services uh, and in some of the other services around the world when we did our research that often things aren't re-examined. Now in our particular service, we do, we do um, six weekly um uh, sorry, so again, yep. So six weekly, three monthly, and, and then six monthly uh, hoist recurrencies and recency. So there's a reasonable amount of physical activity, again, that's assessed in those exercises, not heaps, 
but enough to show that you're capable to, to do some of that work. And then nice. we have an annual um, swimming uh, competency as well. So um, it's not assessed to the same level as the entry standard, but it's assessed to the point where they go, yeah, you're capable of performing the job in these scenarios. You know, the water day in particular is a full day of water exercises, including, um, including, you know, the, every high line evolutions plus raft evolutions plus strop, hypo strop, straight out of the water evolutions as well. So, um, so they're not assessed, I guess, to the standard that we demonstrate in the science, but they are at least assessed. But uh, I think, it, to be honest, I think that most employees have been pretty open to it. Uh, but there's this kind of historical industrial union argument that unless you're willing to, imp you know, provide the facilities for people to right. meet standard, then you shouldn't re-examine them. I'm sure you've heard that somewhere. Yeah, before. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it's a it's a challenging thing to to overcome. But I think for specialist workforces, it's pretty hard to make an argument that that shouldn't be part of um, part of people's practice. Good stuff. Ben, I love it, man. I, I love all the research that you've done with this and, and brought it to the table. I, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I, I created a, my own workout um, that I do every year now, uh, specifically on my birthday, just to see if I can do it. But it's, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a run. You know, it's it's five rounds. Yeah. I do a 200 meter run and then seven clusters. And a cluster is a clean from the ground, front squat into a thruster, so a press overhead. I do, uh, uh, was it? It's 95 pounds, whatever that is. That's what, 10, 20, 30, 40 kilos, give or take. Mm -hmm. um, and then five ring muscle-ups. And a lot of people can't do a muscle-up, yep. so that's cool. But then I would tell them, hey, do a pull-up and do a, a dip, like on a box for the rings or something. So the reason I, I picked all these exercises from the running to the clusters to the ring muscle-up is, is kind of based on any movement that you might have in a real rescue. And that's your yeah. running could be hiking. It doesn't have to be a run. I just do it for the cardiovascular side. You know, the cluster, that deadlift, clean thruster, overhead movement with 95 pounds is is all a movement you might have to do. Um, and then the ring muscle yeah. up yeah. is that pull up and then the dip. And, you know, it's just, it's something I yeah. like. I threw it together and I, I, I do it every Love year it. now just to see if I can do Fantastic. it. <laughs> yeah, I have no doubt that you can. And- but it is, it's great. You know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a self-assessment, it's logical and it's based on your experience. So yeah, I think it's a great idea and, um, you know, hold yourself accountable, don't you? I do every year. Yeah. So I far think... I'm, I'm doing all right. <laughs> good job. Hey, thanks man. Thanks. No, you good job, buddy. Come on, man. You've done a lot of research to get all this stuff in. So well, I'll tell you what, Ben, uh, you know, I've taken a ton of your time. Thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing. This is what you passed in your roast. And I'm so glad that everybody else gets to hear it. Um, if anybody's got any questions, can they reach out to you? Absolutely. Yep. You just uh, hit hit uh, Ben Meadley, M-E-A-D-L-E-Y on Google, and it'll take you to a uh, website where you can touch base. So that's the easiest way to get in touch. Sweet. And then, uh, you know, like any other research that you have coming up, man, let me know. I'd love to be part of it. And For sure. For sure. Yeah, we're looking at a whole range of things. We're going to potentially work with a couple of manufacturers to have a look at, you know, the drag and the weight and the comfort of harnesses through through the activity of either, you know, being hoisted whilst you're swimming, whilst you're working, uh, walking. We want to have a bit of a look at um, thermal 
uh, you know, th- what what what's the response? You know, what what do you need? I often laugh and look at um, you know, you see the Coast Guard rescue swimmers in the in the hotter areas of America in a, a shorty wetsuit, yep. spring suit, um, you know, just unheard of in Australia. You know, <laughs> which is or in the southern parts of Australia anyway. Um, so you know, what's what's the most appropriate thermal thing for us to do? So we've got these like temperature capsules you can swallow. So you swallow them and it monitors your central temperature. We remotely monitor the temp- uh, the temperature whilst the capsule's in your stomach, whilst we're, we're monitoring your temperature, gets you to do some physical activity whilst you've got a you know a dry suit on or a, or a wet suit or a spring suit or whatever oh it is. So, you know, God, we're looking at some cool stuff. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, lots oh. to do. Got to have something Man. to present at the next Rescue Swimmer Conference. Yeah. Well, I'll see you in Ireland then and I look forward to hearing yeah. about it. <laughs> fantastic cool ben i can't thank you enough man for the stories the insight the information it's awesome i dig it so thank you thanks for having me absolutely and uh the next time i get down to australia you know i'm calling you i'm gonna go right up and yep. down the entire coast all right east coast of australia to hit all of you guys all right <laughs> love it looking forward to it awesome nice right on in that case ladies and gentlemen we are out of here thank you for tuning in we hope you enjoyed this episode of the real rescue podcast please take a minute to like subscribe and hit that share button i'm pulling chocks and taking off but before i go if anyone out there has a rescue story they would be willing to share i would be humbled and honored to have you on as a guest or if you have any questions about rescue or anything else we talk about here send an email to Jason at therealrescue.com. That's Jason at T H E R E A L R E S Q.com. You can also check us out on our web pages, therealrescue.com, our Facebook page, and our Instagram page at The Real Rescue. Again, a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today. Always remember when that star alarm goes off, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard.